The diplomatic envoy from China continues meetings in Europe. This week, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang called for a ceasefire in the war. Plus, a look at the devastation in Dnipro. The attack still caused extensive damages to civilian and industrial infrastructure and the private sector. And later in the program, Ukrainian fashion makes its way to Seattle. Thursday, May 25th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. As a Chinese envoy continues talks in Europe after meetings in Ukraine, a senior U.S. State Department official said there is not much indication that China is willing to use its influence in Moscow to end Russia's war on Ukraine. A Czech lawmaker is also skeptical of China's peacemaking efforts. VOA's State Department bureau chief Nike Ching has more. A Chinese pledge to support Moscow's core interests as Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin met with China's Premier Li Qiang and President Xi Jinping in Beijing Wednesday. This, as Ukraine denied Russian accusations, he was behind a drone attack in the Belgorod region of Russia, and as China sent its special envoy for Eurasian affairs, Li Hui, to Europe to broker a peace deal between Moscow and Kiev. This week, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang called for a ceasefire in the war. We hope that the parties concerned in the crisis can remain objective and calm and make joint efforts for an early ceasefire, cessation of fighting, and restoration of peace. But the Speaker of the Czech Republic's lower house of parliament, Markata Pekarova Adamova, is skeptical of China's peace plan telling VOA the war is not over until Russia returns all occupied Ukraine territory. Because occupation of the territory is uh, just uh, maybe a little bit different uh, way of uh, war. Uh, so uh, the end of the war must be uh, when uh, uh, really Ukrainians uh, decide that this is acceptable uh, on the conditions of the peace for them. In an interview with the VOA, State Department Counselor Derek Cholet welcomed China's talks with Ukraine, noting that Beijing could be helpful in persuading Russian President Vladimir Putin to stop the war. Still, he was skeptical. I haven't seen much to suggest that they're willing to use that influence. And I haven't seen much to suggest that even if they were willing to use the influence, it would work to change Putin's mind. But that's that's the simple thing we're asking. Chinese envoy Li is heading to Russia in the coming days. Separately, Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba is in Africa this week for a diplomatic push to counter Russia's influence on the continent. Nike Chin, VOA News, Washington. 
Ukraine was also flexing its own diplomatic muscle on Thursday as Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba visited Addis Ababa to celebrate Africa Day. Happy Africa Day. Today I'm recording this video from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, from the headquarters of the African Union. It is the first time that the Ukrainian Foreign Minister is visiting this important place. Kuleba called for certain African nations to end their neutrality over Russia's invasion of his country. In February, 22 of the African Union's 54 member states abstained or did not vote on a U.N. General Assembly resolution marking the one-year anniversary of the war that called for Russia's withdrawal from Ukraine. Two of them, Eritrea and Mali, voted against the resolution. Uh, I know that uh, there are countries and people in Africa who sympathize Russia because they connect Russia with the support these countries were receiving uh, during the Soviet Union times and the role of the Soviet Union in the decolonization of Africa. This Russia is very different. I think the biggest investment, real investment of Russia in Africa today is the Wagner mercenaries. When I look at the list of the countries who provide Africa with uh, uh, humanitarian aid, I don't see Russia not even in the middle, not to mention the top of the list. I see European countries, I see the United States, but I, I, I don't see Russia there. He further pledged that Ukraine was on Africa's side when it came to food security, with the continent among those hard hit by rising prices and supply disruptions caused by the Russian invasion. Kyiv was targeted by more drones Wednesday night. We'll get more details on that in just a moment. First, though, another look at the events in Belgorod earlier this week. Ukraine and Russia have differing accounts of exactly who was involved and what it accomplished. For some clarity, I spoke with Karolina Hurd, a Russia analyst for the Institute for the Study of War. So on the most basic level and kind of what we've been able to tell with uh, visual confirmation kind of corroborated against different Russian claims and claims from the two involved parties, which is the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Russian Freedom Legion or Legion of Freedom. Um, Basically, two pro-Ukrainian but all Russian volunteer groups in a small detachment, we're not quite sure how many men, but a relatively small detachment, were able to break through um, the the Sume Oblast border area into Belgorod Oblast in a limited raid um, that started on May 22nd and then kind of pushed into what they claimed were three different border settlements um, in Belgorod Oblast, kind of within ranging from like 500 meters to about five kilometers back from the border. We only really have visual confirmation that they got to Kozinka, which is a small settlement within 500, 600 meters directly on the border, and then some limited footage that the RDK, the, the Russian Volunteer Corps, posted purportedly standing in front of um, different buildings and landmarks in Glotovo, which is a little bit further back from the border than Kozinka, and then uh, Gorapodol, which is yet further back from Glotovo. So from what we can tell, this was essentially a raid. Um, in the doctrinal sense, a raid is kind of meant to distract 
um, kind of it, it was supposed to have a distraction element, both informationally. So, of course, as soon as this happened, the Russian information space kind of exploded with criticism of how this was allowed to happen when Belgorod, the oblast authorities have reportedly invested so much in bolstering the border area. And then also kind of a, a more military distraction sense in that, of course, likely this raid was intend, intended to at least partially pull some sort of troops uh, to the border. So we know that there have been kind of different elements of uh, the Western military district that have been deployed to border areas as well as a central military district. So it's very likely that this raid, at least in part, was meant to draw these forces to a kind of distinct area um, and not allow them to deploy to other border areas or to deploy to Ukraine. The New York Times yesterday published some pictures of what were purported to be from Russian authorities of American military vehicles that the Russian forces had captured. Some people are saying those pictures were fakes. Is there any indication that there was American support, either uh, in material or operationally or anything behind these forces? We simply have no way to confirm this from our end. The best that we can kind of discuss and do is the way that this raid was very much weaponized in the Russian information system to kind of make that exact point. We know that they that Russian sources have very specifically staged pictures um, that they captured these vehicles, but the, the pictures do look staged to some degree. Additionally, we know that uh, Russian sources were kind of pushing this narrative that they'd killed a certain number of the participants of the raid, which the organizers, the RDKS commanders, just straight up refuted. So there's a lot of back and forth between the RDK and the LSR, um, and then the Russian sources on kind of the specifics of this raid. But because there's so much kind of informational... Uh, confusion and tension, we personally cannot, I, you know, corroborate whether or not these were uh, American military vehicles. We've heard some other analysts on this show say that the incursion into Belgorod shows that Russia is vulnerable and it shows that Russia is not prepared. And ultimately, that is a, a PR victory, if nothing else, for Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. And this is absolutely a, a direct and immediate consequence that we saw as soon as the reports started pouring in of this limited, very limited raid into Belgorod Oblast. We saw immediately these very prominent Russian um, pro-war vo voices, mill bloggers, etc., basically start questioning, you know, we've we've spent apparently spent so much in defending border regions and, and increasing fortifications, but you know, this was still allowed to happen. So how did this happen? So it really did expose this major weakness in the kind of sanctity of domestic defense in a lot of ways. Um, we looked at some, some imagery that shows that the settlements that the RDK reported to have got to are actually behind existing defensive lines that, that can be proved by satellite imagery or just kind of our open source confirmation of where these defensive border lines run. So the fact that these were so easily penetrated says a lot about how vulnerable uh, Russia really can be to these sorts of limited raids. And that is absolutely an informational victory for Ukraine. And on the flip side, it's going to be kind of a specific point of neuralgia in terms of Russian rhetoric of kind of having to balance this 
this need to bring the war home to the population to kind of maintain domestic support for the war, but also not cause panic and dissatisfaction in the populace. The United States has um, really, I think, gone out of its way to make sure that Ukraine does not use the weapons that the U.S. provides in Russia. We don't want to escalate things with Russia. When things like this happen, does that make it diplomatically harder for the U.S. and other NATO countries? I would say no, for the main reason that time and time and time again, we've observed limited incidents cross-border raids or drone strikes, that sort of thing, or even the Western provision of aid to Ukraine be framed as an escalation, a red line by Russian voices, and then they immediately fail to escalate, which means that the, the Russian information space really seizes on events like this as a way to push escalatory rhetoric to further an information operation, as opposed to actually using this as an actual, like, tangible ground for escalation. So this, you know, this is all part of a wider information operation to dissuade continued Western support for Ukraine, but it isn't actually a material shifter of, or like a material signifier of Russia's willingness to escalate because they've proven, I mean, it started in summer of 2022 with the provision of HIMARS. That was supposed to be this red line. And then we've seen you know, red lines supposedly reached and crossed and nothing actually ever happened or come of that on the Russian side. So what you're saying is these red lines that get crossed, it's really just, in a sense, propaganda. We are really not escalating the war with Russia. If we were, they'd have broadened it in other ways. Absolutely. These these red lines are information operations. Um, very much premised on dissuading Western support for the war. And it's very important to identify that and call that out as it continues to happen. Carolina Hurd is a Russia analyst for the Institute for the Study of War. Ms. Hurd, thank you for your time. Thank you for your analysis today. Thank you so much for having me. A prisoner exchange sends some prisoners of war home, and Kiev was again targeted by Russia drones. More from our reporter in Kiev, Anna Chernikova. Quite an impressive amount of drones, 36 drones were targeting the city of Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, and uh, all 36 were destroyed in the air by the air defense. All of them were destroyed in the Kyiv region and uh, and uh, in the outskirts of Kyiv. So uh, I can say that it was not too loud in Kyiv. Considering the amount of drones, it was quite uh, Quite a quiet night for Kyiv, but still quite nervous because, of course, uh, everyone woke up in the middle of the night again due to the siren of the air alert. And I also understand there's some new developments coming from Bakhmut. Um, yes, actually, um, the head of uh, Wagner Group, uh, Mr. Prigozhin, announced that uh, his uh, b- his battalions uh, started to handing uh, in uh, their positions to the Russian army today, and he said that this will last until June first. So they are planning to leave completely um, by June first, and this information was also. Uh, confirmed by the Deputy uh, Minister of Defense of Ukraine, uh, Ms. Uh, Hanna Mahler. She said that um, this uh, actually, uh, this information is correct, that Wagner Group uh, representatives 
um, are now so th their positions are now taken by the Russian uh, army uh, in the outskirts of Bakhmut, but uh, Wagner Group uh, representatives still remain inside of the city and in the city center. And let's wrap things up on a happier note. There was another prisoner swap. Can you tell us um, how many soldiers got to come home? Yes, another positive news uh, for Ukraine. Uh, 106 Ukrainian soldiers are back home from Russian captivity. Uh, it was another uh, prisoner swap. Uh, we know that all uh, 106 uh, soldiers were the def are the defenders of Bakhmut. So they were in, in Bakhmut and they got uh, uh, got captured in that area. Um, and uh, some of these soldiers who came back home, they were considered uh, missing in action. So uh, definitely uh, quite a great news, well, extremely great news for their families as well. And let's leave it on that happy note then that the missing soldiers were found and came home. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. The city of Dnipro in southeastern Ukraine has been the scene of heavy bombardment by Russian forces. Ukrainian officials say at least eight people were wounded and scores of buildings were damaged in airstrikes on Monday. VOA's Eastern Europe bureau chief, Miroslava Gongadze, is there. This apartment building in Dnipro was full of life when on January 14, 2023, Russian rocket hit it, resulting in one of the deadliest missile attacks. The attack claimed the lives of 46 residents and more than 76 people were injured. The violence continued on May 22nd when Russian forces launched another missile attack on Dnipro, the most significant since the full-scale invasion began. This time, the Ukrainian air defense, with military support from Western partners, managed to intercept and destroy a majority of the aerial targets. However, the attack still caused extensive damages to civilian and industrial infrastructure and the private sector. Dnipro is strategically important to the war effort, which is the why it remains a constant target for Russian forces. Located in the Dnipro region, it shared borders with the frontline regions of Zaporizhia, Kherson, Mykolaiv and Donetsk. The city has become a refuge for hundreds and thousands of internally displaced Ukrainians who were forced to flee from the eastern and southern region of the country. According to the Dnipro Regional Council, as of February 23, Dnipro region has accommodated a significant number of internally displaced persons, with over 400,000 currently residing in the region. Over the past six years of the war, and particularly since the start of the full-scale Russian invasion, on February 24, 2022, Dnipro has transformed into a humanitarian center providing assistance to both military personnel and civilians affected by the war. Miroslava Gongadze, POA News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Global companies are finding it's not so simple to leave Russia. Others are quietly staying put. AP correspondent Karen Chamas has this report. More than a year after many companies left Russia in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, something became clear. Leaving Russia was not as simple as it might have seemed. Increasingly, Russia has put hurdles in the way of companies that want out. 
requiring approval by a government commission and imposing painful discounts and taxes on prices. Feeling the push and pull between Western sanctions and outraged public opinion on one side and Russia's efforts to discourage and penalise departures on the other, some companies are staying put. Meanwhile, Russian consumers are not feeling a big difference, as many companies that have left are taken over by Russian owners, providing almost identical products. I'm Karen Chamas. Seattle, Washington, in America's Pacific Northwest, is known for its eclectic style and trend-setting ways. Recently, authentic Ukrainian ethnic folk attire made an appearance on a fashion runway at the Metropolitan Fashion Week. Natasha Mozgovaya has more. When thinking of fashion, Washington State, with its big tech companies and outdoor lovers, is not the first one that comes to mind. Yet, in its 11th season, Seattle's Fashion Week emphasized sustainability and its vibrant diaspora communities' culture. Metropolitan Fashion Week, just like Microsoft, Amazon, Costco, and Starbucks, was founded in Seattle. We have designers creating high fashion masterpieces inspired from sustainable uh, stuff. And I'll give you an example. This one dress is made with 6,000 straws because that's how many straws we throw away in one minute in the U.S. A special entrant this year was a collection of vintage Ukrainian folk costumes featuring traditional clothes from several regions of the country. Some of these pieces are 200 years old, so it feels very special to, to wear it. Tanya Zaika, originally from Kiev, has been living in the United States for 30 years. A fintech account executive, she dedicates her spare time to humanitarian projects. What we're trying to bring to our audience today is um, most of them are seeing horrible images of war uh, that uh, Russia brought to Ukraine. And we all saw the devastation, but we also would like to show you the other side of Ukrainian people, the happy, the beautiful, the passionate, rich culture, rich, happy people that we are during the times of peace. Curator of the Ukrainian clothing is Seattle artist and movie maker Volyat Zemka, leader of a local Belarusian folk group. When the war in Ukraine started, I just felt compelled that we needed to support Ukraine, Ukrainian people. By um, the beginning of the last year, I had two full sets of Ukrainian costumes, uh, the Chernihiv and Kiev one. And then uh, when I found out that my friends in Seattle wanted to do a Vishivanka day, I offered them my authentic Ukrainian costumes. The Shivanka Day is a holiday with a goal of preserving Ukrainian folk traditions and includes creating or wearing ethnic embroidered clothes called Vishivankas. Zemka has been carefully restoring the costumes, spending hours matching era-appropriate fabrics and elements. The collection now has 26 pieces. This costume is from Poltava region, and this is the uh, festive costume or holiday costume um, for the married woman. And how do we know that? The whole entire head is covered, and then when it's a girl or unmarried woman or bride-to-be, of course, there is going to be a super huge, absolutely fantastic Ukrainian headdresses that we all absolutely adore. Some elements remain relevant in today's fashion, says Zemka. Take the Dukac, a traditional coin pendant. Ukrainian fashionistas really love it. And I think it's their kind of statement that this is Ukrainian necklace, I'm Ukrainian, and I wear it with pride. Zemka admits that collecting traditional clothing is an endless journey, 
and hopes that one day the collection will find its place in a museum of Ukrainian culture. Natasha Mosgovaya, VOA News, Seattle, Washington. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip. Do you see?